Hey, y'all, and welcome back to Queer in College, the podcast miniseries to discuss the queer college student experience. Today, I am joined by two of my greatest mentors from my time in undergrad, Dr. Scott Henderson and Dr. Sarah Wirth, to gain a faculty perspective on some of these issues. Scott is a professor of education at Furman University, and prior to his time there, he was a secondary school social studies teacher in Chesapeake, Virginia, an English instructor in Japan, and an adjunct history professor at various colleges and universities. Sarah is a professor of philosophy at Furman and attended herself as an undergrad studying music and philosophy. She later received a master's in philosophy from the University of Louisville and a PhD at SUNY Buffalo. She has been a professor at Allegheny College and Miami University before returning to Furman. Join me as we dive in together. All right. Hello. Welcome, Sarah and Scott. Thank you. Hey, Jesse. Hello. Thank you so much for um, just appearing on my podcast. It really means so much to me to have my greatest mentors from Furman University on this podcast. Um, Sarah, I consider you like a mom. And I was telling Sarah, Scott, that you were the first um, gay adult that I've actually think I've ever met and such a wonderful role model for me to have at Furman. So just thank you both for being here so much. Thank you. That's very kind. I wanted to start um, just to ask you why you teach? What um, is so appealing about being a faculty member and, and working with students? We'll start that one, Scott. Sure. Uh, you know, ordinarily, I would say, uh, because I love my subject matter, my discipline, but I'm actually not in the discipline that I was, quote unquote, trained to enter. So your question does... Uh, uh, provoke a challenge for me. And uh, the way I would answer it then is that it's the difference that um, I am sometimes able to make in the lives of other human beings, particularly young adults. So that's, that's my great joy in teaching and why I continue to do it. I would have to say that I started absolutely because of the discipline that I was in, because I loved philosophy and I loved studying philosophy. But I think the, the question for me might really be, why do you teach in the kind of place that you teach in? Mm -hmm. um, and I would much rather be in a, a college where I really get to interact in meaningful ways with undergraduate students than train young philosophers in a PhD program or in a, a much larger school where I have less meaningful interactions with the students that I have. So I get to teach ideas for the first time to college students, but I also get to have a lot of uh, important relationships with them outside of the classroom, uh, especially on the study away trips and things like that. Mm. Great, thank you both so much for those responses. I, I know you mentioned, both mentioned like making the, that difference in students' lives and forming close relationships and I know you've both had close relationships with queer students specifically um, in your careers. And I wanted to ask just what does the queer experience, student experience mean to you? Um, and how would you define it? What comes to mind? Well, uh, when, uh, when I hear that question, I must be honest. Uh, I will have to give a perspective based on my age. And so when I first hear uh, 
what is it like? What is the queer student experience like? I have to uh, immediately check um, my response because when I was your age, when I was a young adult, to say queer student was definitely to define a negative or pejorative experience. Um, I think the way it has come to me now is um, much more positive. And um, I think some of the words that come to my mind when I, when I think of the queer student experience, uh, certainly uh, challenging, certainly um, sometimes even quite difficult. But I also think of other things, acceptance, celebration, uh, freedom and uh, affirmation in ways that were um, neither common nor possible 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, I think that's so important too to think about it that way because a lot of these conversations I've been having, we've been being very critical and um, thinking about the barriers, but it's so important to think about the, the affirmation that even I've experienced in the celebration because it's such a, a beautiful thing. Well, and I think um, for Scott and I both, we've been teaching for longer than you've been alive, Jesse, um, which is, you know, weird, but um, it's changed over the years. The kinds of experiences that queer students have been able to have has, has just really drastically changed in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, and when you say, you know, what is it like? I, I, have, I of course, have no idea what it's like. Um, I have really no idea what it's like to be a student of any kind now, because like you said, I'm, I'm actually more your mom's age. Um, I don't know what it's like to be a 22 year old in the United States right now. Um, and I come at this much more, um, I guess I kind of approach all of this as, as trying to figure out how to be the best ally that I can and to support all of my students, but queer students in particular um, seem to find me. Uh, and I know that it's a particular struggle at Furman, which is, you know, just where I teach. And so it's, um, it's, it's something that I guess that I feel called to do a little bit is to make sure that, that queer students can be as comfortable and as happy as they can possibly be wherever they are in their lives. Yeah, um, I know you, you're saying that it's something you feel called to do um, and something that gives your job meaning and purpose, but do you ever feel like the weight of like the responsibility to mentor queer students. Um, we've talked about mentorship a lot in some of my classes and um, Dr. Henderson Scott, um, also as, as a gay man yourself, do you feel like, um, like that added responsibility to really be there for gay students um, since there aren't many um, queer faculty members that can take on that mentorship role? And does that ever get in the way of some of your other professorial duties? Well, the, f the first question um, with respect to whether I feel any kind of a special responsibility, um, uh, I don't know that I would quite phrase it that way. Um, I, 
I often have to remind myself that, um, that many young LGBTQ plus individuals, but particularly young gay men have not seen um, in many cases ever what a long-term committed male couple looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and I know prior to my partner's death, even among people our own age, we would often be told, uh, you know, you, we've never known a single male gay couple that's been together as long as you have. Um, so I do feel that it's important for um, young gay men, students at Furman, to uh, see what one possible version <laughs> of their adulthood might look like. But I wanna add a quick caveat here, which is not something that you, you might've imagined my uh, responding with. You, you said, does it ever get in the way of my professorial duties or whatnot? Um, no, um, and it's the reason you probably wouldn't think. Um, I actually put up probably a slightly thicker wall of separation between myself and gay male students than I do any other group of student because of how concerned I am with first and foremost, just appearances. Mm. Um, there's a longstanding um, cultural stereotype of older gay men um, being predators uh, uh, and they're the object of their predation are younger gay men. Um, but then secondly, I don't want anything to disturb a mentor relationship, which would include the student thinking that perhaps I'm attempting to become too close or to blur boundaries. So I actually push back a little bit. So no, it doesn't interfere because I'm the one who's, who's keeping that barrier there. Yeah, thank you for, um, for talking about that. We, I took a, a gender in higher ed class last semester and we talked about how male professors are less likely to take on um, women as mentees. Um, for the reasons you're talking about, but I had never thought about it in terms of um, like gay faculty and gay students too. So thank you for, for noting that. Mm -hmm. I, I just want to say that how thankful I am to have had you as a role model because you were the, the first the gay male adult that I had really ever been in contact in and positively role modeled for me. And I wonder how much of that is a, a regional thing too. Like, is that more common in the South? Um, for that to happen. Yeah, and there are only five of us gay adult males anyway in the United States. So. <laughs> but I'll let, I'll, let, I'll let Sarah now respond to. So I, I feel like, Jesse, I feel like your, your question is, do you think of it as a burden? Um, and for me, and I, tell me if that's not really your question, but for me, it's not at all. I mean, I don't, Certainly there are some students that I find more burdensome than others, but I don't, I don't think of um, sort of being a good ally as an extra burden that I don't feel like doing um, ever. I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever thought of it that way. Um, and I think in my role at Furman, I've, I've had a lot of gay friends and a lot of gay colleagues and a lot of gay students over the, over the years. And um, 
for me, it's, it's actually just really exciting being able to feel like I can affect some change right now. I'm in a position of authority um, in charge of a committee where we can actually change some policy and change some, some actual rules. Um, and so it's, it's actually, it's very exciting for me. And so there's the, there's the policy side, but then there's also just interacting with the student side. And I, I actually love both. Mm. Can you say more about the committee that you're working on? Yeah, so I, I was the chair of the diversity and inclusion committee at Furman. And uh, so I'm, I'm no longer because I took a sabbatical. Um, but we were able to divide up the work of the diversity committee into very small group committees, subcommittees uh, with very, very specific tasks. And so uh, we had eight subcommittees that were working on different aspects of diversity at Furman, faculty, staff, and student inclusion of all kinds, international students. Um, and in the second or third year of this committee work, I was absolutely adamant that we add an aspect of this committee structure that included LGBTQ um, interests. And so I pushed Scott and pushed and pushed. I think I had to ask at least two or three times for him to chair this subcommittee, but- Because I knew who my boss would be. That's correct. <laughs> Scott, tell me if I'm wrong, but I believe that uh, the only group of people that was working on LGBT issues before that was called the LGBTQ Concerns Committee. Yes, that's um, correct. which just sounded to me like a place for problems. Right. And Wayward youth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I really wanted to have a, a group of people that were invested in identifying what some of the possibilities could be for Furman and then figuring out how to implement better strategies uh, to just do some. Uh, more advocating on behalf of these students. In light of some of those conversations, what, what do you think are some of the biggest issues facing queer students? Um, and Scott, feel free to chime in too. Um, so I think that there's, um, there's definitely inclusion problems. Um, and I think actually a lot of it has to do with housing. Um, that's sort of what I, came to be able to see was that there are a lot of issues with acceptance and not knowing uh, who your roommate is going to be, at least initially, and then there are not 100% accepting student groups. Um, mm -hmm. Some of the fraternities on campus in particular are more concerning than others. Um, but one of the things that I would like to see is um, a gender, I don't know, a gender free or a gender open uh, hallway or place that people could live that are feeling more, less binary. Um, I know there's, we have a number of trans students who don't feel like they fit easily into the, the standard binary. And so I think that a lot of other colleges have 
gender fluid housing options. Uh, and I think that what I've seen at Furman is that the administration is not anywhere near open to something like this yet. And I think that it's one of the things that I think that we need to be more proactive about uh, so that we could recruit a more open student body. But I think it's something that we would have to decide to do because it's the right thing to do before we have the demand for it because we'll never have the demand if we continue down the path that we're, that we're on now. Yeah, and I can add like even as a gay male, like my experience as a freshman coming into housing was so scary. And I was so anxious about whether or not my roommates would be uh, accepting and affirming. And, and that's something that came up with um, the Boston College students that I interviewed for a podcast as well. I think it's, uh, it's something, especially about this age where you, you don't necessarily know everything about your sexuality yourself at 17 or 18 when you're filling out housing forms. And the anxiety just coming to college, all of the anxiety can be really, really built up to a debilitating state, I think, um, in thinking my roommate might not accept who I am. Um, and that's, there's no reason for that. I mean, those are, there are, there are ways of addressing that well in advance of college that I don't think that we do. Right. And, and I think just to add something very quickly to that, which um, uh, is something that, that I've always been vocal about, uh, which is one of the big drawbacks of a residential college, particularly liberal arts college. And by residential, that term means you must live on campus all four years. And I found, you know, even so uh, my freshman year in college is now over 40 years ago, but I found that the biggest feeling of liberation I had was after my freshman year when I could move off campus. And I have been struck by how Furman LGBTQ plus students could potentially and are handicapped by having to live on campus because that then deprives them of the privacy to do what um, I think Sarah is rightly pointing out, which is to explore and investigate their own sexuality, which is not something I would, I, I would uh, hazard to say even a majority of 18 and 19 year olds are entirely clear about. Yeah, have you all seen that new data about 16% of um, Gen Z identifying as LGBTQ plus? I have, I, uh, I'm not quite sure I know what to make of that since that would be a number vastly larger than any other uh, study uh, unless that Q simply refers to students who don't feel comfortable identifying in a specific category, then 16% seems like a reasonable number. Yeah, it seems, it seems like great news to me though. I, I loved reading about that. Um, I, wanted, I wanna bring the conversation back to your role as, as faculty members and in the classroom. Um, how, do, how do queer folks, LGBTQ plus students show up in the classroom and what responsibilities do you feel 
um, and incorporating those voices into the curriculum or just making your classrooms affirming spaces? Well, first of all, you're going to make a great host, Jesse, because I love that. I want to bring us back to, you know, you were <laughs> reining us in there. Um, sure. You know, um, I think my experience at Furman may or may not have been the same as Sarah's. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Furman is still a, a, has a student population that has very little diversity. I am rarely aware for sure of students' sexuality or gender identity because they don't, um, they're not forthcoming about it and they're not forthcoming about it because they are fearful. Mm -hmm. And again, that goes back to, we have such a small LGBTQ plus community on campus that that is um, a, a, a very problematic element. Now, um, you might ask, well, why are they concerned about when so maybe you're the only LGBTQ plus person in class and I'll, I'll be interested in hearing Sarah's response to this. Um, I, am, I am constantly told that the main reason for that is fear of what the other students will say or do. It is not the professor. It is not the administration, it's not the staff, it is other students. And I'll end on this note, which is both half empty, half uh, a full glass. When my partner and I first came to Furman, we were very anxious not to reveal our identity or our relationship to students. Faculty and staff were fine. Um, the glass half full is I now feel free to be forthcoming in appropriate and relevant context about my sexual orientation. But anyway, I'll be interested in hearing you, Sarah, what your experiences have been. Well, let's, we've got a couple more minutes here before we reach the time. <laughs> um, but I wanted to ask if there was one thing that you could change about um, higher ed, or maybe Furman um, on a smaller scale, what would that one thing be? Um, and it could be in regards to the queer student experience or just something you would change to make it more equitable in general. I'll answer very quickly and it'll just dovetail on something I said earlier. I, I think we have to recruit and retain more, a greater diversity of students and that includes students who identify as LGBTQ plus. Well, again, I think it's, you know, it's definitely changed over the years. Um, I think when I first started at Furman, I was barely older than the students and, and now I'm just much closer to their mother's age. But I think I'm, I've always been seen as unthreatening as a woman. Um, and I, I have a, a lot of students not in class, but certainly outside of class come to me and I've had a lot of students over the years come to me and um, come out to me um, and I, I mean more than I more than I ever could have imagined you know students coming to me closing the door and telling me that I'm the I'm the first person that they've ever told and I think in our role as adults at college uh, we can be seen as safe people. We're not their parents. We're, we're not their 
family, we're not their peers. Um, and so I guess I've always, I've liked that role um, in, in being the, the safe adult nearby. And I, I know how hard it is to be in college and how scary it is to, to come, come out into the world on your own in, in a lot of ways. Um, and so I guess I've always just thought this is a, an extra added benefit of my job. But again, because I'm an ally, um, it's, I'm not living that part either. Um, I, and so I can be seen as I'm a safe heterosexual woman married to a man with kids. Um, and so I'm, I'm not seen as a threat. There's no, there's no way that anybody's going to, uh, think that I would be any sort of a predator in the way that you mentioned, Scott, which it just appalls me. It never, ever crossed my mind that that would be a concern of yours. And then at the same time, it makes perfect sense. Um, and so I don't teach anything in particular in the class, in, in any of my classes about uh, queer issues, but I try to be as sensitive as I can to understanding what's going on in the heads of my students, especially as they, um, as, as I learn more and more about them through the semester and, and just and through the years, like I did with you, Jesse. I mean, you, you had my class your very first semester in college. And so I think that had a big impact on you and, mm -hmm. and we were able to keep our connection. Yeah, you were the first college professor that I ever met. I had to go into your office to request to be in a philosophy class. Um, and I was so scared and my- And you should have been. <laughs> it was, I was so mean, wasn't I? <laughs> no, 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 you were, you were great. But my, my dad was um, the only parent I had that went to college and it was in the sixties. Um, and he had given me this very like, rigid scary view of what a college professor was like is like old white man who would like flunk you if you spoke out of turn um and more like scott than me yeah, yeah. exactly like nailed that. it um but you you were so not that and you just let me into your class and you were such a strong powerful female role model that i had like never seen before and i think that that's why i felt um, so comfortable in, in opening up to you. And, um, and I wanted to study abroad. I, I chose um, to go on your slow food Italy trip that first some, um, May after my freshman year, um, partly because I wanted to eat good food in Italy, but also <laughs> because I really did want to just travel and learn from you. Um, so thank Boy, you. Boy, that quick save, Jesse. <laughs> yeah, that was a good trip. It was life-changing. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a big question. I mean, I think we should have students that are better writers, that are better critical thinkers. <laughs> we should get paid more. Um, I don't know. Like, I think that the, the gym should be open better hours. <laughs> um, no, I don't know. I think, I mean, I think Scott is right. And I think that um, my work on the diversity and inclusion committee, that, that's really sort of what we came to, which is it has to be a simultaneous effort to recruit faculty, staff, and students um, that are just from a, a broader set of backgrounds. And otherwise we just become so provincial 
um, that there's there's no point in getting you know a liberal arts education or higher education at all if we're we're just learning the same things from the same kinds of people and we're not challenged. But but I, I do think it is it's a simultaneous effort with faculty, staff, and students. And I think that it's important to see different kinds of people and different religions and different sexualities. And I think in a, a microcosm of the world like Furman, where we are residential and we are relatively small, um, if we just see white teachers um, and a lot of white students and we learn about the history of white men, it's really hard to expand your mind and to think that we are, are able to engage with a broader set of issues. So I, I think in order to become really educated, we need to broaden a lot of different things. Yeah, thank you. And I, and I recognize that that question is a hard one. And um, I have just been grappling with it so much realizing that mm -hmm. higher education has always been a privilege perpetuating system um, and it was never meant for anyone who wasn't uh, white and male and had privilege and those issues have just changed and, and morphed over time they're still there and um, it's hard to reconcile like my own um, like desire to make change in in this field with like the fact that it is a privilege perpetuating field that I'm going into. And it's, it's a hard question, it's so difficult. Mm -hmm. But there could be a lot of better and worse kinds of experiences for all kinds of people. And I presume that all three of us are in it so that we can do the best that we can in order to offer better experiences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, last question. Um, what are just some resources, books, um, podcasts, movies, anything that you would recommend um, to queer students or faculty members or professionals in this field? So first and foremost, I would recommend this podcast that <laughs> Jesse Tompkins is doing. I mean, got to be right up there at the top of the list. Um, you know, that's a really tough question because in terms of the sorts of genres you've identified. Um, you know, much of that is entirely subjective, but that of course has never stopped me. So I'd throw out a couple of books that were meaningful to me. One is, a, is an, a, an old uh, book, uh, Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. Um, by old book, I mean it is among the very first um, serious novels to engage the topic of um, male homosexuality. A uh, more recent 2001 book by Jamie O'Neill is At Swim, comma, Two Boys, an absolutely gorgeous lyrical novel that um, stands on its own regardless of its subject matter. And then very quickly, two films. Again, each of them is somewhat dated. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to foment controversy by saying Boys in the Band, but uh, the original, uh, but two films that uh, had a great impact on me. One was Beautiful Thing, which is a British film. Uh, and then another film that I, I really think still holds up quite well. It's an Australian film, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. And in that one film, we see of, of 
huge range of both sexuality, but also gender expression. And the reason I say it holds up well is because, you know, it, the, the dignity of the characters it portrays uh, is, is just as, you know, we can laud their dignity now as much 25 years later as we did when the film first came out. Awesome. Um, and it has a kick-ass soundtrack. ABBA. You what? remember the soundtrack to that movie? Nice Jesse, have saying. you seen that movie? I haven't, but it is on my to-do list right now. Oh, it's, oh, I'd forgotten how much I loved that movie. <laughs> I also wanted to plug your, your poetry book, um, Scott, Jen, and Gardenia, right? Very good. Uh, and I'm so glad you got my email saying to make sure to mention it on the podcast. Um, I bought that book. I don't know if you knew that. And then I took your class and you said to never buy your book that you would. Right, that I would just give you a copy. And I had already bought it. I know. Well, um, so besides uh, Priscilla and my poetry book, Sarah, because you would have said the same thing about yeah. my poetry book. Um, sure. What, what are, I mean... What are the resources? What are some of the resources? You know, honestly, I don't know if I have resources per se, as much as um, I guess, you know, part of my allyship has been a willingness to see films with, with gay themes. Um, and that's been a big part of my development um, over the years is just sort of a, a willingness to go see these films and in ways that I think a lot of my peers just it's it doesn't even hit the radar. And so my um, one of my best friends from high school came out as as gay. So, I, you know, my best friend when I was 15 is, was a gay man. And so I started learning about these things early on alongside him and so we saw a bunch of gay themed movies when I was in high school and then when I was in college and um, lots and lots of, I was in the music department so I had lots and lots of gay friends in college who maybe didn't know they were gay then but they all came out after um, and so I guess I've all it's it's always been part of my periphery at, at least to, to see gay films. Um, and again, I just, I don't know how many of my peers really are, are open to those sorts of themed things, but there's a lot of really quality acting and storytelling that goes on in that world that not, not everybody even recognizes. Yeah. I want to add one more resource, and you better keep this in, Jesse. I would say Dr. Sarah Worth is an extraordinary oh. resource that I would recommend to any LGBTQ plus person. There, there you go. I'm a resource. You are. I love that. I, um, I love that you both <clears throat> talked about movies, too, because I feel like growing up, movies were where I saw myself. Like, it always was. I was mm -hmm. a movie watcher, and it mm -hmm. was a way just to see different stories and different experiences because in my own life in real life there was just one story you know that I had to follow mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. so I'm so glad that y'all both mentioned movies well that brings us to the end of a terrific podcast <laughs> thank you both again so much um, for being here this was iconic I would say well it was a pleasure Jesse and uh, um, 
I think it gives uh, us great, great delight to see you flourish as you are now, and you're going to be an enormous resource yourself to um, college students and higher education in general. Well, thank you so much. Mm -hmm.